Thanks to LegalZoom for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Whether you want to take your business to the next level or take control of your family's future with an estate plan, LegalZoom is where to start. They're not a law firm, but their network of independent attorneys can help keep you on track. For special savings, enter Fool at checkout. LegalZoom.com. Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hello. And for a limited time only, Ross Anderson. He's a certified financial planner. Yes, correct. CFP. CFP. With with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And it's time for another mailbag episode. Yay. We're going to answer your questions about financial planning software, finding the right benchmark, and shopping for annuities. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Yes. It's that time again for another all-mailbag extravaganza episode where all we do is just blow through a bunch of questions and have fun and have some amount of fun doing it. A little bit of fun here little, and there. Just a little. A little uh, bit. Not too much, though. No, no, no. And joining us is Ross <laughs> Anderson. Hey, Ross, thanks again for coming. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us. Um, what's new in your world? Anything exciting? Uh, I mean, there's plenty exciting in, in, in Motley Fool Wealth Management all the time. We're, we're open for new clients at the moment, foolwealth.com for those that uh, are interested in checking us out. But uh, other than that, life goes on. How's, yeah. the, how's the DJing going? Uh, that's, uh, that, that's different. We don't talk about that here. <laughs> Ross is a professional DJ. Just just make that clear. Okay. But he's not like, I feel like you are like, like you probably do weddings and stuff like that, but you also play like legit bars and places in DC. It, like, yeah, I've called it a profitable hobby for a long time. It's been been a lot of fun. Yeah, but it in no way undermines what good advice you offer financially. It, it's funny that you started there. Nobody ever takes you seriously from right. the other world. So uh, <laughs> I've lost all credibility with everybody listening today. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about in the world of DJing? When people find out you're a financial planner, are they like? Totally mm. disinterested. Mm. No. <laughs> Not undermined, just disinterested. All right, Ross, as our special guest, you get the first question. And it comes from John. Where does the Motley Fool stand on modern portfolio theory? This sounds so, like, serious. Okay, that is a diversified mix of stocks and bonds. Most of the Motley Fool recommendations are stocks, and the same can be said of Warren Buffett. Okay, so... Uh, Keep in mind, I'm answering really for myself, and 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 then secondarily for Motley Fool Wealth Management versus the Fool overall. So uh, I will qualify the answer. Uh, I think that we look at a mix of stocks and bonds as being important, particularly as you're getting closer to retirement. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett. The the thing that I take away from him, he's 87, and what he does every day is he gets in his car and he goes to work. Uh, for fee- for people that don't necessarily want to work into their late 80s, which I think is is most folks, um, having something that starts to prepare you for that retirement drawdown is is pretty critical. Uh, so the portfolios that we design do tend to have a, a combination of both stocks and bonds. Uh, the other big component is investor temperament. Um, I think we believe in stocks as being the long term growth engine for your portfolio. Uh, that's why the Motley Fool has been uh, and, and and Fool Wealth have had the type of track record uh, that's been there. But really, if you're close to needing some of the money, you've got to start taking some of that risk off the table so that you're not uh, kind of walking into a, a, a buzzsaw as, as you start to need the money. 
Uh, what's that old rule of thumb? Like your age minus a number is how much you're supposed to have in bo- stocks and bonds. Well, you I didn't s- just make that up. I did butcher it, it but I didn't yes, make something the, up. I'm true. kind of in the ballpark. So it used to be 100 minus your age. Mm-hmm. Yeah was the amount you should have the stock market. And then they got moved up to like 110 minus your age. But either way, those are still pretty conservative. Um, but in, in my rural retirement service, I have three model portfolios based on where you are along the road to retirement. And each one of those has a little bit of bonds, as well as international stocks, small caps, large caps. So we do believe in diversified portfolios. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it comes down to how much of the money and when you need the money. Um, that, that you're going to be drawing off of that in a distribution phase. Because uh, when you lose control of that timing, if, if you're having a bad year in the market and you need the money this year, you're selling good assets at bad prices. Uh, and that's what we're trying to help people avoid in most cases. Um, so so that, that is the real risk. Uh, for folks that don't need a significant piece of their portfolio, or if they have other income coming in, they might look at it differently. Uh, but that, that's the real, real critical component for us. The next question comes from Alan. Tomorrow, I turn 64 years old. Hey, happy belated birthday, Alan. And plan on retiring in one year. Good for you. I'm very excited. I'm excited for you. We are selling our house and moving to the Florida Panhandle, which is so beautiful. Right? Uh, it is, depending on oh where you gosh. are. But like yes, Destin, the water, and the, yeah. oh my goodness, so yeah. lovely. I don't know why they call it the Red... No, I do know why they call it the Redneck Riviera, but it is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> My question, and that's no commentary about you, Alan. I don't Whatever, let's keep moving on. My question is about the bond allocation in the Rule Your Retirement Model Portfolio for Retirees. Hey, another bond what allocation. What do you know? Is this where I should keep three years' worth of living expenses, or should that be separate from the portfolio? Well, Alan, first of all, congratulations. And as someone who grew up in Florida, I do think it's a lovely place to retire. Um, the retiree portfolio in the Rural Retirement Service is pretty standard, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. But I really like to think of it as 60% in the stock market and 40% out. And what you do with that 40% depends on when you're going to need the money. And that is where you would put that three to five years worth of expenses that you need. We call it in early retirement called the income cushion. And it's basically you would take three or five years worth, you just estimate how much you're going to need over the next three or five years, subtract Social Security, subtract anything you get from a pension, anything you get from an annuity, and then that remaining amount you put in cash, CDs, short-term bonds, maybe individual treasuries. And the rest you can put in the stock market if you are aggressive enough. But generally speaking, about 60% in stocks, 40% is good. That income cushion is part of that 40%. And then every year, I assume you have to feed that income cushion. Exactly. So every year, you have to replenish it. The the original actually concept, or at least the term income cushion, came from a guy named Dave Braze, who used to write the retiree portfolio for The Motley Fool back in the early 2000s. And according to his methodology, you would replenish it every year, except in years where the stock market is down. And then you don't replenish it, because you don't want to sell your stocks while you're down. You just live off the income cushion until stocks recover. Now, of course, that might take a while. Historically, it takes three to five years for a bear market to get back to where it was. Sometimes, though, historically, it's taken six to eight years. So you could run through that income cushion. At some point, you have to sell. But generally, live off the income cushion again. Come back on your expenses if you can, and then replenish it when the market is back up. All right, our next question comes from Matt. Previously, I worked for American Funds. Is that a mutual? I assume that's a mutual fund company. Yes, okay. it's an actively managed mutual fund company for the most part. I don't know if they have any index funds. It is mostly sold 
through advisors. Okay. And uh, Matt was able to buy their mutual funds commission free. I see that as an automatic 5.75% return. So that means that the fees on those funds yes. was Wow. He was like, just, that's the upfront commission on the, at the lowest, what they call breakpoints and the smaller amounts. If you invest more, it would be a lower commission. But yeah, that's the, that's the amount of haircut that off is, the top. That is a big haircut. It okay. Is. My question is with the diversified funds available to me with no sales charge, is it worth it to try to pick stocks too? I know it can be, unless there are stocks that I really love. Is it worth the time and research? research, or should I leave it to the pros? Yeah, so the the 5.75 that he's referencing, that's really the sales charge. Um, And so, that amount goes to a selling agent or a broker that is having a client invest in that. And so, being able to bypass that is a good thing, but there is still a cost of investing in a mutual fund, which is going to come in the form of the expense ratio. Um, So, that doesn't mean that it's free investing, it just means that you aren't aren't paying the second tier that's between you and the fund company. Um, So, if you're going to compare mutual funds, I think you should really be looking at that set of funds versus other no loads and 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 things that you can get into without also paying that sales load, um, you know whether or not you want to choose stocks or or offload that to a professional. Uh, I think it really comes down to, to how much time do you want to invest in uh, putting together a portfolio for yourself. So so Motley Fool Wealth Management, uh, we are on the side of the business that is trying to construct portfolios on behalf of our clients and for folks that either don't have the time or don't have the interest. Uh, or aren't comfortable building their own stock portfolios. So I live in that world. Uh, but for folks that that like getting into the weeds and and really finding stocks that they love, I know that's a huge passion for so many investors. So um, I would try to ignore the what, what you're kind of considering that that automatic five point seven five percent return because I think um, really that's leveling the playing field between your options uh, and and then consider whether or not you want to spend the time. Yeah, and and of course it's not you don't it's not either or you can do both. In fact, I often recommend that people do both. You have a diversified portfolio of low cost mutual funds, and then pick stocks as well. I mean, I've met plenty of people who just find out that they love picking stocks, makes mm-hmm. them more engaged in their personal finances. They they try to find more ways to save more money so they can invest more, and I think that's great. So it doesn't have to be either or. And I think a mix of both is actually pretty good. Yeah, I think I fall in the camp of uh, unless there are stocks that I really love, as Matt writes in his letter. Like I like investing in companies that I really love, but I don't love digging into income statements and right. looking at all the numbers and crunching everything and. That's just not me. And that's fine. And that's perfectly fine. And that's fine. okay. <laughs> right, Rick? That's why we have Stock Advisor. That's true. Someone right. else can do it for you. Okay, our next question comes from Levi. I'm 23 and recently married while attending school full time and working full time. <gasps> A lot going on. Wow. My wife just graduated. We have a three-month emergency fund and are saving $400 a month. Should I invest now or wait until I have a six-month emergency fund? Also, the company I work for doesn't offer a 401k, so I'm wondering where to invest my money. Well, Levi, uh, congratulations on being married and having the emergency fund. Oh, my gosh. And saving $400 a month and you're 23? Yep. Ah. Um, so I would say, first of all, you you sort of adjust the size of your emergency fund for the number of your financial obligations. So the advice to have a six month emergency fund is really, I think, for someone who has kids, mortgage, car payment. I think for someone in your situation, a three month emergency fund is actually pretty good because you know if something happens to your income or, or times get tough, 
you and your wife probably can find a way to live pretty cheaply. You don't have to worry about making the mortgage payment or something Child like that. Care, right. That kind of thing. And the other thing about an emergency fund is not just to cover income, but some other big expense, which is more likely to happen if you like own a house or something like something happens to your roof or something like that. So I think three months is fine with you. As for where to put the money, uh, I would I would say a Roth IRA is probably your best bet. I'm going to guess that you're not in a high tax bracket with the Roth IRA. You give up a tax deduction today, but since you're not in a high tax bracket, that's okay. In exchange, you get tax-free withdrawals in retirement. But the other good thing about that, tying it to the emergency fund, is if you de- do need the money, you can get the contributions to a Roth IRA out tax and penalty-free if you need them. So if you do have a bigger ticket emergency, you can get access to that money. But, but try not to. But try not to. It, the, yeah. Every time you tell people that, I, I don't want them to consider the Roth IRA to be emergency fund money. If you absolutely have to, you can get to it. But but try not to think of it that way. Right. Forget everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, next up on the two-handed financial advisor, we're going to offer all the conflicting advice. Now that the New Year's madness is over, it's time to work on your story for 2018, and LegalZoom can help. Finally get serious about launching and running your own business, or square away your family's future with the right estate plan. You can do all this and more with LegalZoom. They've been helping people like you take care of their dreams and responsibilities for over 16 years. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but they have the resources to keep you on the right path, including advice from their network of independent attorneys, all at your fingertips. LegalZoom plugs right into your life without billing you by the hour because at LegalZoom, all pricing is given up front. Write your 2018 story now at LegalZoom.com, code FOOL, and get special savings. That's LegalZoom.com, code FOOL. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com, code FOOL. Somehow my finances will grow with the interest I show in the interest it gives me. And now a piece of paper from me won't seem half as flimsy. All right, Ross, this one's for you. And it comes from Holly. After interviewing financial planners and getting frustrated with the type of service they offer and the cost, I have decided I need to explore finding financial planning software to help me manage our family's financial plan. I've used Quicken for years, but don't feel it offers an overall look at your financial picture. What have the fools found that works for tracking your budget, investments, and allows for a family to run scenarios for what-if decisions like buying a new house or car? Listening to the fools for years gives the confidence we can manage our finances without paying someone 1% of our assets. Thanks for all your great information. All right, Holly. So uh, She's I basically can, saying, can a computer replace us? How yeah. can I get rid of you guys in my life? Yeah. Uh, while I'm uh, only mildly offended by the question. So, <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Uh, so, so, We're replacing you with machines. I, I think it's tough to do right now. So, so uh, luckily, I, I feel like our role is a little bit safe. Um, I can tell you personally, uh, for budgeting, I, I really haven't found anything that works better for me than, than Mint.com. I have all my stuff linked to Mint. Uh, everything that I basically spend money on runs through uh, a card of some sort. And so that, for me, is the easiest thing. Uh, I find them to be very difficult for looking at uh, future scenarios or investing. I, I think that they really kind of struggle in that. But for budgeting, they're a great tool. Um, on the actual software side, what we use is, is really a market-leading financial planning software called MoneyGuide Pro. Uh, it is not consumer-facing in terms of its intent. So it, it is for professionals, but if you want to do some really deep-dive scenario analysis, it's, it's very good at that. Um, but that may be more horsepower than you need. Um, bro, I know you've, you've featured other Monte Carlo engines and things like that. Are there other uh, tools that you've shared with, with RYR readers? 
Uh, here and there, I mean, personal capital is another one that I know people here at The Fool use and like. I'm a little surprised that she doesn't find Quicken to her liking because a lot of people really love Quicken. Um, the calculator that I have mentioned online as a retirement calculator is with Calc XML. And it's kind of a long URL. Yeah, here so we here go. we go. Ready? www.calcxml.com forward slash calculators forward slash retirement dash planning question mark SKN equals 606. Dun, dun, dun. Anyways, that's a good retirement calculator. But um, I would say that to Holly that. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> that it's, you don't like that. Uh, I would say to Holly that there are other ways to get financial planning help that you don't have to pay 1% for. There are fee-only planners who will charge by the hour or by the project. So let's say you have a what-if scenario, like you don't know if you want to buy this house or you don't know if you're on track for retirement. You can hire them for just a few hours, and they will have access to these higher-powered tools like MoneyGuide Pro and some of these other professional-level tools to help you analyze that single question. And then you might be fine being on your own for you know a few more years until you have another situation where you want help. And we, we were talking about this right before the show started, but some of the tools, if you're asking it a specific question, it might give you a really specific answer that doesn't take into the context the rest of your picture. Right. Um, so some of these social security tools, for example, will help you get the maximum from social security, but they don't take into account that there's a drawdown from your portfolio while you're waiting. And so you kind of solved one problem and created another, and they're not looking at it in context. So, so be careful with them. Part of what we do is try and help people see those blind spots. And um, you know, certainly, if you're, if you're doing it on your own, you're kind of taking that into your own hands. There was a couple of studies that came out in 2016 looking at various free calculators online. And one of them, for example, looked at 36 free calculators, and they ran a scenario through the calculator. And the scenario they created was of a couple that was not on track to meet retirement. But 70% of the tools said they were on track because they used faulty assumptions, um, you know, uh, unrealistic returns in terms of their investment returns, unrealistic projections of what they'll get from Social Security, all kinds of reasons. So I really do think when it comes to like big life decisions like, can I retire? Am I on track? It, it, it actually is worthwhile to pay a pro a few hundred dollars, even a thousand dollars to get a good assessment on, on where you are. But it sounds like Holly has the desire and the smarts to manage a good bulk of her financial life. I think so. And I, and and it certainly is a situation where if you are making most of your finance like your investment decisions, there's really no need to pay someone 1% to do that. You just need to pay someone to do some of the other financial planning things. Next question comes from Kathy. I'm writing because I'm confused about Social Security divorce benefits. I thought it was 50% of the higher earning spouse, but according to Social Security's website, if you are eligible for retirement benefits on your own record and divorced spouse's benefits, we will pay the retirement benefit first. If the benefit of your ex-spouse's record is higher, you will get an additional amount on your ex-spouse's record so that the combination of benefits equals that higher amount. So, I won't get any benefits if my benefit is greater than 50% of his? Right. So, she included a quote from the Social that Security was website. Plugged, which yeah, is, pulled straight from it, so, which, which is, is riveting stuff. It is riveting, and it's not clear at all. Yeah. Um, and so much of Social Security is actually pretty complicated, including the benefits for divorced spouses. So, let me talk a little bit about that. So, you can receive benefits based on your ex-spouse's record if you're married for at least 10 years and you have not remarried. It doesn't matter if your ex-spouse is remarried, but you cannot have been remarried. Um, the benefit is 50% of your spouse's benefit at his full retirement age or your own benefit 
which is ever greater. So here's what it's sort of confusing, though, and that is um, the Social Security. Let's say, for example, you would get 300 based on your own benefit, just on your own work record, and your spouse would get a thousand. So you would get either 300 or half of the spouse's thousand, which is 500. So you'd think, of course, 500 is easier, and they would just say your 500 is divorced spouse benefit. But that's not what they say. What they say is, you get your 300, plus we're going to make up this difference of 200 as the divorce benefit. I don't know why they do that, but that's the way they do it. So when you read about divorce benefits, it's part of why it's kind of confusing. A few other things to keep in mind with the divorce spouse benefit. If you take it at age 62, which is early, it'll be reduced. If you delay past your full retirement age, which for most people around these days is 66, you don't get a bigger benefit. So if you're going to get the divorce spouse benefit, it doesn't pay to delay it past your full retirement age. Um, If your ex-spouse is deceased, you actually might be eligible for survivor's benefits. And for that, you can take as early as age 60. And you can still get it, even if you get remarried, after age 60. So this is all kind of confusing. Clear as mud. Clear as mud. Um, So to answer your fundamental question, which was, so I won't get any benefits if my benefit is greater than 50% of his? The answer is yes, you will get benefits, but it'll just be based on your own record. You won't get any benefit as a divorced ex-spouse. Do you have any experience, by the way, of calling the Social Security Administration? No. Okay. So here's the thing. I would normally say people, you, you should call the Social Security Administration to get all this clear. It, yeah, it's not personal experience. I, I've, I've talked to people that have done it. Yes. And I would say half the time when I've talked to people who have done that, the Social Security Administration has given them incorrect information. Oh, really? It's kind of common knowledge in the financial planning industry. I don't want to slam the people who work for the Social Security Administration. I'm sure they're all hardworking, nice people. But it's so complex. It's another situation where I think it actually could be worthwhile to pay a pro who is an expert in Social Security to help you on the decision of when to take it. The, the other thing is that they're not strategists. So if you ask them a very specific question, uh, they're not going to try and look through your question to figure out what you're really asking. So if you say, can I do X and you can do it, they'll be like, yes. You are legally able to do that. And, and that yeah. may not be the best option for you, but uh, they, they may have still been correct. Right. It's not their job to maximize your benefit. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Ross, here you go. This comes from Joe. Have you ever done an episode on the investment potential of peer-to-peer lending platforms, such as Lending Club, Prosper, etc.? I'm curious about your take on them as a potential alternative to CDs, money markets, etc. for stashing emergency or savings for other items cash we don't intend to put in the market. For background, my wife and I are 30 with two young kids. We maxed out my 401k, our IRAs, and 529s for the kids, maxed to the state deduction. And these peer-to-peer lending platforms advertise a 4 to 7% historical return, but they also seem a little too flashy and slick, and I'd be curious to hear your take so I don't accidentally dive into an over-marketed, underperforming option. Before we get to the question, can you explain a little bit about what it means to invest in a peer-to-peer lending platform? Yeah, so, so peer-to-peer lending, what they're doing is they are trying to match up uh, borrowers that need funds for something, whether it's a home improvement, credit card consolidation, anything. Anything. But yeah, they're unsecured loans in most cases. Okay. Um, so anything that the borrower needs it for. Uh, and then they are trying to do the credit analysis, figure out how risky is that person, and then match them with people that are looking to lend money to other people. So they're, they're just a facilitator, they're a middleman um, trying to match you with borrowers, basically, if you're on the investor side. Um, 
And so the, the benefit there is that you're going to get a piece or, or the majority of that interest rate that the borrower is paying. Uh, and so this is kind of, um, they're saying, okay, banks have been lending money for years, whether they've been easy to deal with or not. Um, how can other people get into this space? And so that's what peer-to-peer lenders are trying to facilitate. Um, so then, if so, let's say Bro wants to put on an an addition to his already massive mansion house that he has. Uh, I'm just teasing. I, I do not have a mansion house. <laughs> mansion house. That's not even a phrase people use. <laughs> well, welcome mansion, to my mansion house. Mansion house. house. Uh, anyway, so Bro wants to add, do an addition. Uh, then does and I want to loan. I want to loan someone some money. Then does does this peer to peer lending platform actually say, okay, Allison, we've matched you. We're gonna match dot com you to bro and his, and you are literally waiting for him to pay you back. Or does it all go into a great big fund and then every it all gets dispersed and blah blah. It, Who yeah, knows? it's it's not all pooled. So what's actually happening is most of the time you're not funding a single person's whole loan. There's okay. a bunch of people satisfying any single loan. So you might say, I need. $25,000 for my llama farm or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're going to then put that out there as an offer. This is a borrower. This is their credit rating. This is roughly what they want to do with it. And then people can bid on that loan. And so you might end up with three or 400 people that have lent into that that make up the full $25,000. Okay. Okay. And so they're trying to spread that risk that if there's a single default, it doesn't take one person down. Um, but you can choose how much of the loan you want to fund on any given product. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So, with that in mind, that's how it works. Is this something that Joe should use for an emergency fund or a saving for other items fund? Uh, sh- that's how he described it. Saving for other items. Yeah. So, so I would not ever use that for an emergency fund. Okay, I, Joe. No. I, 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 I think of it very much like buying a bond. So, if you're otherwise investing in debt or buying bonds, I think this is an alternative to that. Um, or if you were were having longer term money in CDs, um, but this is much higher risk than a CD. There are defaults on these platforms. Nobody gives away four to seven percent risk free, right? So there there is absolutely an additional risk for the additional return that you're getting. Uh, but if you've got some midterm money, not emergency fund, but maybe not long enough term to be in stocks, um, I think that these are an interesting uh, kind of intermediary versus maybe corporate bonds or municipal bonds uh, that you could get a little bit of a higher return. You're also going to have to do a little bit more work for it because you do have to go in and look at the loans that are available to issue and and, and uh, bid on those and decide how much you want to put into each loan. So so there is some work on your end as the the lender. So uh, be prepared for that, but but definitely don't do this with your your emergency savings. All right. Next question comes from Janet. I love your podcast and look forward to it every week. Oh, thanks. As a part owner of a wine shop in Washington, I especially enjoy Allison's references to our very own Walla Walla Wine Country. Yay! City so nice, they named it twice. Uh, My spouse is 70 years old and I am 60 and a pretty aggressive investor. I am still working full time at a new business. I started with a younger partner, this one a pharmacy to go with the wine shop. That's so Walla Walla. What a great combo. So perfect Walla Walla. Uh, And could continue to work full time or part time for the next 10 years. My question is that I frequently get dissatisfied with the returns on my mutual funds because I'm always comparing them to the S&P 500. Can you give me an index or ETF with which to compare my returns that would be appropriate for my age and closeness to retirement? Well, Jenna, it sounds like you might be asking two questions. There's 
benchmarking your overall returns, and then give, given your age and proximity to retirement, but also benchmarking your individual funds. So for the first one, I think it's good to look at just a regular old Vanguard target retirement fund. And for you, I would look at the 2025 fund, which is you know, it's a fund that's designed for people who plan to retire at some point in the next five to seven years. It's currently 65% stocks, 35% bonds. And I would compare your portfolio to that. Based on what you've told me, you're probably doing better because you said you're an aggressive investor. But if you're not, that could be a clue that maybe you should be trying something different if you're not beating that fund. And the target retirement fund does get gradually more conservative as you get closer to that date, which is what most people should be doing. As for your individual funds, you start by finding out what type of fund it is, what kind of category, and then finding an index fund that invests in a similar way. So, for example, if you have a small cap value fund, go find a small cap value index fund from Vanguard or anyone else and just line up those returns. You just want to make sure you're making an apples to apples comparison. The truth is, uh, the S&P 500 is a large cap index fund. It's kind of getting growthier because its largest holdings are now Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon. And it has done very well over the last few years. Large caps have beaten small caps and mid caps. Growth has beaten value. So a lot of funds are not looking good compared to the S&P 500. But these things always turn. I call it the investment hokey pokey. Right now, large cap and growth is in. At some point, it's going to be out. And some of these smaller cap and value-oriented funds are going to look better. So uh, if you're looking for an easy way to figure out what each of those funds is comparing itself to, they all have to declare that. Um, so if you go to Morningstar.com, the free version of the site, you don't have to have a, a premium membership to see this. Put in the ticker symbol of each fund, and it'll tell you what they're comparing their success to. Um, so, so that's probably the easiest way to say, is this fund actually beating what, it, what it's trying to beat? Sounds easy enough. All right. Next question comes from Nick. I have reached 62, so retirement is looming. I have more than 200000 in a government TSP retirement account, and I'm shopping for annuities and, and am befuddled as to whether this would be in our, my wife's and my, best interest. I receive 41000 per year as a retiree from the U.S. Air Force, and I'll receive 11000 a year from the VA when I retire, plus I'll get 17000 a year from Social Security if I retire next January. Any info you can share would be most appreciated. Okay, so Nick, the the thing that's toughest about doing this show for me is that I don't get to ask follow up questions because I have quite a few. Uh, <laughs> we have questions. I, I you thought we have answers. Yeah. No. I, like I, I normally get to pick at these types of things before I give a real answer, but um, the real question here is what are you trying to accomplish? So it sounds like you've got a number of pretty solid income sources between the the military, retirement, Social Security, all of these income streams. Um, if you're feeling like that is not enough income on an annualized basis. Uh, an annuity is another way to potentially add some income there in a guaranteed way, uh, but you're losing a lot of liquidity and you're losing a lot of flexibility when you do that. So I would be very careful before you make that that sort of a choice, um, because that's sort of a, a almost an irreversible choice if you're going to invest all of that money into an annuity, and then you'll have all of your assets in kind of annual income mode and nothing to, to pull from, potentially, if there is maybe an emergency or the roof on the house. We'll, we'll keep going back to that. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, I really worry about whether or not I would lock that money up into an annuity where you don't have as much flexibility with it. Um, that being said, you know if, if guaranteed income is the goal, there might be an appropriate case to be made, um, but, but I'd be very careful with that. And, and zoom out to look at what are we really trying to solve, and then 
find a strategy that supports the goal versus kind of looking at the tool first. And it sounds like he's already got almost 70000 in guaranteed yeah. income a year. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go even harder than you on this and say, Chance, I, I, he's got enough guaranteed income right now. I don't think an annuity is probably going to be in the best bet because he's got a lot of guaranteed income. But in terms of liquid assets, two hundred thousand dollars for someone who's about to retire is, is not a whole lot. It's only a couple roofs. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's true. So I would keep that in more liquid investments. That, I mean, that without being able to ask him more questions, of uh, yeah. course. But. I mean, yeah, no, it's true. Like, and and some people are are truly discomforted by market fluctuations. Yeah. And if that's the situation we're in, that we have to have guarantees, maybe an annuity could make some sense. But but other than that, I, I agree with you. I I wouldn't do it. All right, next question goes to Bro from Ryan. My girlfriend and I have a 529 set up for a kid that we hopefully plan to have in about four years. For now, the 529 is in my name. However, I'm going to grad school next year. Will the 529 count against me in regard to receiving financial aid? I always love people who are saving for their eventual children. <laughs> That's very impressive. They're so on it. We have a couple of those that work here. I know. It's I fantastic. Know. Megan's one of them. She discussed it the last show, uh, last mailbag. Anyways, when it comes to financial aid, the key is who is considered the owner of the asset. So generally, assets owned by the student renew, reduce financial aid by twenty percent, whereas assets owned by parents reduce aid by just five point six four percent. 529 owned by a parent for the beneficiary of a kid's parent-owned asset. Uh, if the kid owns the 529 and they're still dependent on the child and the parent, it is also considered a parental asset. However, Ryan, since you were talking about grad school, I'm assuming you are no longer a dependent of your parents, so it is probably going to be considered your asset and count more against your financial aid. That said, that's just a general rule. It's always good to contact the schools that you are interested in to see how they handle financial aid. I was thinking, if they do count it against him, what's something he could do? I looked into maybe he can gift the 529 to his girlfriend, transfer it to her, so not just change the beneficiary, but transfer ownership of the 529 to her so it's out of his name. The thing is, when I looked into this, Depending on who's running the plan, you may or may not be able to do that. Some plans don't allow that, and there are probably some gift tax issues involved there as well. So definitely get some expert opinion on that, at least from an account, and then look at what's available for your plan. But I think that's something to consider if that's really going to harm the amount of aid you're going to get. Yeah, if it's more than $14,000, I believe he's going to have to file a gift tax return to do that. It may not actually cause any taxes, but having to file that return is is sometimes enough of a hurdle. Yes, it's actually two. It's for 2018, the gift tax exclusion has moved up to $15,000. Look at you. Sorry. I, I haven't even updated my stats for the year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And today's last question comes to us from Nick. Nick writes, my wife and I are 30 years old. We're entirely invested in a diverse allocation of equities through a variety of Vanguard ETFs and a small pool of individual stocks. I know we'll benefit from the recent dip in stocks with our bi-monthly automatic investments, but this recent dip has made me think about building up a cash reserve held in a money market fund in one of our IRAs for buying opportunities like this. What are your thoughts on keeping some percentage, like 2 to 3%, of our portfolio in cash? We have an emergency fund and a regular old savings account, but I don't want to use that for investing. Okay. So, uh, 
this question comes up a lot, and and I understand where it comes from because every time we see stock prices uh, drop, uh, for those of us that that want to be aggressive and have a, a long time horizon, uh, hopefully we're getting excited about that and going, "Wow, these things are on sale! Let's go I, shopping! I, I can't wait to go shopping!" Uh, and it's tough to go shopping unless you have some cash, but it's almost impossible to really make this a plan unless you're going to really market time. Uh, it always comes down down to is it the right time to be in the market and is it the right time to buy, um, and, and so we normally try and caution people not to try and do that. Uh, two to three percent is not a large enough portion of your portfolio that it would really concern me. Uh, if you're going to keep two to three percent in your in your cash bucket and ninety seven percent stays invested, um, that's still a very aggressive allocation. So that wouldn't bother me. When you get to ten or twenty or twenty-five or thirty percent in cash, uh, if you're a long-term investor, I think you're ultimately going to do more harm there. Really, if you think about a year like 2017, which was a uh, abnormal year from a stock market perspective, you saw 21 percent increases on the S&P 500, and not once did it give you a five percent pullback. Right. That would have meant you're sitting in cash the entire year, waiting for that opportunity to buy. You're missing upside. Uh, and and so I think mathematically it makes more sense just to stay fully invested. Um, but if you wanted to tinker around with a, a small percentage, uh, I don't think it's going to hurt you that bad. But but behavior wise, I would encourage you just to stay fully invested. Yeah, I think there's there's really two ways to invest. You buy a diversified portfolio of stocks and funds and hold on for a long time, or you analyze individual companies. If you own, he owns a few stocks. If he feels like those stocks are now fully or overvalued, and he feels like there's not much upside to those stocks, and he has a proven record of showing that he's pretty good at making those kinds of judgments, I think it's personally fine to sell those stocks and wait for good buys. Talking to the analysts here at The Fool, I know there are many of us here who feel that way, that right now it's harder to find a cheap stock. So they have cash on the side waiting for that opportunity. I think that's different and it's probably fine compared to someone who is just diversified stocks in general and thinks, oh, I just don't feel comfortable with this. I'm going to sell some just so that I know I can wait for the perfect time to get back in. Usually that does not work out as well. I think that's true, but I, when you talk to people that have that feeling now, I also wonder how they felt a year ago, right, or, or oh, yeah, the sure. year before that, yeah. right? Right. I mean, we, we've been hearing people say for years, well, you know, the market's been going up Bear's a lot coming. since 2009. The crash right. is coming; it's got to go down some point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How how much upside are you willing to lose? Uh, and I was it a Peter Lynch quote that uh, there's a lot more money lost waiting for market corrections than actually in them. Um, you know that that tends to not be the best mathematical strategy. It can make us feel better, but but the right. math doesn't really support it. Right. Back in 2014, uh, Morgan Housel, who worked for the Fool back then, wrote a report on the optionality of cash and why he keeps as much as 40 percent of his assets in cash. Um, and it talked a little bit about waiting for for good valued stocks as well as having money on the side for emergencies and stuff like that. Um, anyone who had a lot of cash since 2014 has missed out on a lot of upside. So it's just one of those things you have to accept. It sounds like you're calling out Morgan for some <laughs> bad financial no. shots fired. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, please come back on the show, Morgan. It's okay. Bro didn't mean it. He didn't mean anything personal. Well, Morgan did have some stats behind it. He he looked at someone who started investing in 1929 and compared one person who invested $100 a month every month in the stock market versus someone who put $100 in cash. And then when the market dropped 20%, that person put all the cash in the market. 
And from 1929 to, I assume, the end of 2013 or 2014, the person who built up cash and waited for the bear markets did come out ahead. So there, for, for his argument, there were some numbers behind it. But that does mean sometimes you have to wait a long time before you get that pullback. And that, that takes so much discipline. It really does. So much discipline to do that. And, and uh, that's harder than it sounds. It really is. All right. Uh, that covers it for the questions, but we do have some uh, some other uh, letters that came in. We received a lot of feedback about our Valentine's Day episode. <laughs> we were both very sick for and slightly drugged. So, it got a little weird. I don't know if you heard that episode, Ross, but it got a little weird. You did hear it? I heard pieces of it. I didn't hear the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank everyone for all the well wishes, because uh, we got a lot of, of letters saying, hope you feel better. Uh, it was a crazy episode. And one listener named Al was inspired to write a truly remarkable poem about that episode, um, something that would make Solomon himself blush. Um, <laughs> here's just one little excerpt from it. So come to me, my darling, and let me feed you these 1950s-style, San Francisco-inspired meat tidbits, one by delicious one. <laughs> it was a much longer poem than that. It was a fairly, this was the safest for radio part of that poem. <laughs> um, so that we got a big kick out of that. That's one so. way to eat raceroni. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good. Okay, so the Luffies are coming up. And for those of you who don't know, the Luffies are our annual awards show. It's incredibly disorganized and not at all consistent or reliable or scientific. Uh, but this year, we're looking for your help to make the Luffy Awards even greater than mediocre, which is maybe what it's been in the past. I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so we want, I want to hear from you guys, our listeners, on the categories that we should award, um, that we should give out awards for the Luffy's in. So, uh, and then we'll have our team of analysts at the Fool vote for the winner. So maybe you want to know the Fool investing team's favorite Bitcoin play. I don't know. <laughs> Or maybe you want to know their favorite whiskey. Whatever. Send the suggestions over. Favorite investment book. Favorite fund. Favorite fund. Most memorable investment. I don't know. What have we done in the past? We've done all kinds of crazy stuff. We've done, yeah. So, anyway, send us your, send us, what do you want to know? What do you want the Motley Fool to give out awards for this year? Let us know. Favorite safe withdrawal rate. Oh, yeah. we got some strong feelings on that. That's going to be a tough category to win. Uh, so anyway, send us your suggestions. I'm sure they'll be better than uh, what we just tossed out there. So. Send them to? Oh, answers at fool.com. That's go. our email. You can send everything to answers at fool.com. Uh, you're also welcome to follow us on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook group, Motley Fool Podcast. It's private. Just ask to join and you can come on in. Um, I don't know, I'm just going to start plugging everything. What else do we have? <laughs> those are the things. Those are the th- those are enough of the things. Uh, okay, Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you guys. That is the show. It is edited unseasonably by Rick Engdahl. And again, our email is answers at fool.com. Send us your Luffy category award-winning suggestions. Rick, Rick is laughing at me like this is all falling apart. <laughs> That's fine. You're so close, Allison. You're so close. I'm so close. For Robert Brokey, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. 